Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There's not a place on this side of eternity that I would rather be than right here with all of you right now. Isn't it wonderful to be together? Wonderful to be together um, in and remembering these things of first importance. <clears throat> if y'all recall, we're kind of taking a running head start at Easter. So we looked at the crucifixion, we looked at the death of Christ last week, and this week we're looking at the burial and preparation, preparation for Easter Sunday next week where we're going to study the resurrection. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. I would like for you all to turn there. We're going to start in verse 55. Um, and while you're getting there, I want to start with a little story I found on the internet. And y'all know everything on the internet's true. <clears throat> this story was uh, set quite a while ago when people corresponded via letters. And it was about this young American engineer who got sent to Ireland to work for his company in this new electronics plant. This was a two-year assignment, and it was particularly difficult because he had a, a longtime girlfriend back home. But he took the assignment because he, he was excited because this was going to give him an opportunity to finally save up enough money so he could put a down payment on a home and he could move forward and, and marry this longtime girlfriend. So she was back home in Tennessee and back and forth their letters went. Now, they corresponded a lot, but as the weeks went on and, and things got lonely, she started to kind of have doubts. I mean, she knew there he was on the other side of the country, and she knew where he worked. There was a bunch of beautiful young ladies, and, and so she wrote questioning him about it, and, and he wrote back to her, um, declaring with, you know, the, the passion that someone would that, look, I, I love you. I, I admit it that at times I am tempted, but, but I fight it. I'm keeping myself for you. I promise that I'm going to be true. So the next correspondence arrived in the mail, and this young engineer received a, a package, and in this package contained a note from his girlfriend and a harmonica. I'm sending this to you, she wrote, so you can learn to play it and have something to take your mind off of those girls. So the engineer replied, thanks for the harmonica. I'll practice every night and think of you. So Tom went on and the two years ended and he jumped on the first flight home and, and got off the plane and there she was in the airport in Tennessee with all of her family and they ran and right as he was about to embrace her, she said, well now hold on just a second, before we get to hugging, I want to hear you play that harmonica. <laughs> she trusted him, but she needed some proof. She wanted some evidence. You know, we are evidence-driven people. We want proof in the things that we believe. I, I don't think we're inclined to, to trust naturally. If we're going to believe something, we want reasons to help us do so. And, and this week, I believe we are given proof. We're given proof that Jesus really did indeed die. And as you will see, this can give us confidence in several things. I want to start with the text. Matthew 27, let's read starting in verse 55. This is right after Jesus has passed away on the cross. And we pick up. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea 
named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, the, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and, and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now as I was studying this passage, I have to admit I was a little disappointed. And, and here's why. As I'm looking at the observations, the first thing that I noticed is what this passage doesn't tell us. I have to admit, as a preacher's picking the topics he's going to preach on, I kind of have an idea of where things are going to go. So I do my best to choose a text and let the text guide me. But I have this inkling in my head as I'm planning on the things I'm going to talk about before. And I got corrected on this one because I was excited as we kind of walked up to the burial to ask some really cool questions about Jesus. I mean, what did Jesus do during the few days that he was that he was away from his body. Where did his spirit go? What was happening? Wouldn't that be fun for us to get to sit down and, and wonder and ponder on all of those things? And then as I turn to the text, I see it doesn't follow along with his spirit at all. I mean, we're really not given much information about what happened to Jesus, um, his spirit. In Luke 23, 43, he says to the thief on the cross beside him that, "'Truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise.'" Maybe there's a a few little hints about what was happening. Some study 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, or Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, and they wonder if maybe those can give us some hints. I'll I'll let you study those on your own. I'm not sure that they apply to this situation, but but you can wrestle with it some. The bottom line is this. As, As I look at the text, it seems that we aren't told because probably not much of theological significance was happening. Ultimately, I think that's the case. That's why we weren't given much information. God instead thought it was more important for us, for some reason, instead of tracking with Jesus' spirit, to stick right there with his body and to walk with his body through this process of burial and to give us information about it. And so I think it's our job to ask more important questions like why? Why does it tell us this? What does it tell us in following his body? And I think we learn several things as we look at the text. The first one is this. We see as we walk up to this, um, to this passage that his body hung on the cross for several hours at a minimum before he was taken down. It was evening time before Jesus' body was retrieved from the cross. Now, I kind of wonder at times why the process stretched out the way that it did. Maybe I ask too many questions. Y'all may get tired of all the question asking I do. But why, why couldn't Jesus just pass away there on the cross, and then come back to life. Um, why, did, why did the burial even have to happen? Well, I think some of us understand naturally that for it to be believable, a certain amount of time had to pass. 
It wouldn't have been as believable if just an hour or two Jesus had appeared to be dead and then, and then woken up. But, but also a bigger picture than that, it would have been out of line with scriptural prophecies and motifs that we see throughout the Old Testament. I mean, even Jesus had predicted that there would be a period of time that would elapse between his death and his resurrection. Paul, in the text we've opened each week with from 1 Corinthians, wrote that his resurrection would happen on the third day and that that was in accordance with scriptures. So there was something about fulfilling Old Testament scriptures that matters. There's there's five things I, I see in the Old Testament. We see Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 12, 40. Christ represents Israel, and um, the end of Israel's exile is spoken of in Hosea as a resurrection that would happen after three days. Three days after the first Passover came the Red Sea, pointing us to Christ's resurrection. It was on the third day after the journey to sacrifice Isaac that Abraham prepared for the sacrifice and then was provided a sacrifice in his stead. In Hebrews 11, 19, it says that Abraham knew God would be able to raise Isaac back, raise him from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back when he provided a sacrifice in his place. Finally, we see often in Scripture, new life is portrayed as a sprouting seed which came forth on the third day in original creation. So we look back over the Old Testament and and these scriptures that he's talking about, we see that God has always worked through periods of waiting. Um, And in hindsight, we see that there was clear precedence for this three-day period, or perhaps I should say for Jesus being raised on the third day. So not only does his lifeless physical body being exposed on the cross for hours give us confidence in the factuality of his death, It also helps us connect with God's divine plan as we see these allusions made throughout history to this event. See, there was not a a person at the cross. There was not a person within the Jewish community, lay person or leader alike. There was not a person in the Roman guard or amongst the Roman leadership that doubted Christ's death. He was most assuredly dead. And his body, furthermore, was prepared and buried in front of witnesses in a known location. That's the other thing we get from this passage. We see coming forward Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent community figure, someone who had the connections to be able to go in front of Pontius Pilate and ask permission to retrieve his body. This man comes forward and he has provided this new tomb that's been carved out of the rock. This would have been an expensive gift to give to Jesus. In fact, it was knowing that it's new means that his family had never been able to use it. It was prepared and, and meant to extend out for generations beyond him. Because often they would take the body of a family member who had died and they would place it in a, on a shelf in this tomb. And after about a year, they would come back to the tomb and they would roll the stone away and they would gather up the deceased bones and they would gather them into a smaller package and they would move them to another location in the tomb. And so this tomb would, would house the decomposing remains of their family and then they would gather them up and and multiple people would be placed in the same expensive tomb that was hewn out of the rock. But by burying a criminal in it, Joseph of Arimathea made it where it couldn't be used for his family any longer. So this was certainly a gift, certainly a prominent gift, would have been something that caught the attention of people and something that had a specific location that could be attached to it. 
Furthermore, as we walk through the passage, we see that throughout the process, there were witnesses watching the removal of Jesus' body. There were witnesses watching his burial in this tomb. I don't think we realize how atypical of a treatment this is for a criminal. I mean, Jesus wasn't just removed from the cross by an unnamed Roman soldier and thrown in a pit or sent to an unmarked criminal graveyard. This wasn't done by some random person after everyone had drifted away from the cross and said their goodbyes and finished their scowling. This was something that was done in public, that was watched and attended to and accounted for at every level by the highest authorities within the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And then finally we see as we get to the end of this passage that there were known public plans put in place to prevent any sort of deception. So they go to Pilate and they, they, they remember the things that Jesus has said and they said, hey, we got to be sure that, that this imposter doesn't deceive us even in his death by allowing his disciples to come steal his body. And then everyone's going to be tricked and it's going to be worse than it was at the beginning. And yet, with some level of irony, it was their attempt to secure the body. It was the security measures that they put in place, the, stealing of the, the sealing of the stone and the, the placing of the guards that ensured that Jesus' body was watched and accounted for. So we have some connections. We have some connections here in this passage. I think that the drive that we have for rational proof the evidence, the drive that we have to receive evidence is mightily delivered through what we see here. We can have confidence in the historicity. We can have confidence in the fact of Jesus' death because of what we see written in the Gospels. In fact, I think that is the main reason that the Gospels turn away from His Spirit and track with His body through this process. Because there's some things that we need to know. Some things about His body, the way that it was handled, that's important for us to come away with. Because without a definitive death, then for us to later claim a resurrection doesn't mean much. You certainly can't be resurrected if you haven't died. It would be much easier to claim that he didn't actually die. It would be much easier to claim that his body was misplaced or moved or hidden. And throughout history, people have tried to claim this. But as we look back at the historical record, we see that most definitely it is not up for debate. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he was buried and placed in a tomb. What we just read makes the other options an impossibility. And that means when we walk up to the resurrection next week, we have no other choice than to deal with the fact that this dead man's body is gone. And we have some answers. We have some answers to come up with for that. There is no other way than a resurrection. The burial account connects with our detective brain, our rationality that wants proof. But I would argue that we share a an additional connection. We share a personal connection with the burial of Christ. Um, found an article on Britannica.com where it talked about some different cultural burial practices. Found it kind of interesting. People do things pretty different in different parts of the world. I mean, I've already explained the Jewish custom during the time of Jesus of burying their dead in a rock tomb and gathering the bones at a later time. Among the um, Tibet Buddhists, they do a thing called sky burial. 
They believe in the value of sending their loved one's soul towards heaven. And so in this ritual, they leave the bodies outside. They often cut them into pieces, and they let the birds and animals carry them away. Um, The Malagasy people open their tombs of their dead every few years. They bury them in a known place, but they open it up and they rewrap the bodies with fresh burial clothes. And each time they go through this celebration, they have a community dance around the tomb. Music plays and they dance for the dead. There's a tradition in Varanasi, India, where they parade the dead through the streets. They dress the bodies of the deceased in bright colors that stand for different things. Um, As they get towards the end, they sprinkle their body with water from the Ganges River, and they're cremated at the town's crematorium. There's a Zoroastrian tradition that requires vultures to keep their traditions alive. They uh, put the body in an elevated place and they let vultures carry their, um, devour their body and, and carry it away. They believe that a dead body defiles everything that it touches, and so that's the way they dispose of it. There's some really interesting ones. In the, the Philippines, there was the Tinguian people. They dress their deceased in fancy clothes and they sit them up, their body in a chair, and they keep lit cigarettes in their mouth for a period of time. thought that was interesting. Um, I could go on, but... But I'll pause there. As Christians who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we also have certain burial rituals. And I'm not talking about how we place our deceased in a coffin and then display them um, one last time for friends and family to say goodbye and put them in vaults underground. I'm talking about baptism. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In him... You also, sorry, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Or probably my favorite is Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know, burial gives closure to the end of a life. When the casket is lowered and the dirt is placed back over the spot and the grass begins to regrow, we understand very clearly that one chapter has been closed. And on this side of eternity, a a new chapter has been opened. So it's fitting that as we convert to Christianity... As we transition into this new chapter and this new life, that we would have similar markers put in place. That there would be a a process, a, a ceremony that we go through. And as I look at it, it really is beautiful how the process of becoming a Christian so closely mirrors and resembles the process of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The very process that makes our salvation possible. We see the death the death of Christ, and we have to go through a death to ourself. That's the period of placing our faith in Christ, our repentance. It's a turning away from ourselves and towards Him. That's when we die. 
And then we see that we're required to, to bury our sinful nature and we participate in the burial of Jesus through the process of baptism. And then instantly we are resurrected from the waters of baptism to live this new and changed life just like Jesus was bought, brought from the tomb. Baptism is the burial ritual of the Christian faith. Baptism is a ceremony that gives us closure to our past life and, and opens us up into this new life. It connects us with Christ and makes it possible to live new, resurrected, and changed moving forward. You know, I believe we ask a lot of silly questions about baptism. And baptism is best understood in light of what it points us to in the gospel story. So I want to encourage you to tell the story. You know, as I look at Jesus and as I look at the evidence that we have laid out for his death, his burial and the circumstances, circumstances around it that testify to the inescapable fact that he was dead, I can be confident that the stage was adequately set for what is to come, his resurrection. If a living man died and then was raised from the dead, I think we have something worth sharing with people. I think sometimes we can get so disconnected from the reality of what, we know what death is, but, but Jesus Christ being dead, we can go, get so disconnected from that that we forget that it's true. But he was dead. And there is no getting around it. It is a historical fact. All of the pieces were put in place to protect that piece of evidence. And if Jesus was dead, then, then his resurrection becomes a life-changing, earth-shattering story that needs to be told. But it's not just his story that needs to be told. That's the most important one, without a doubt. But lest we think it's outdated and disconnected, our modern-day connection with it is that the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus has been lived out thousands of times since in the life of Christians. His burial, this burial that we experience in baptism gives us an anchor point to look back on. It testifies to the reality of our own death to the sinful nature and it makes possible this new life that so many of us are living today, living in a way that everything has changed. And that's a story that needs to be told as well. Because often I believe someone, before someone is receptive to hearing the gospel message, they need to see in the life of others what the gospel has done for them. And I look out and I see hundreds, hundreds of gospel stories of death, burial, and resurrection that need to be shared with a broken world. Those of us who are baptized believers sit here this morning as spiritually resurrected beings. Our death and resurrection marked with an empty grave, the waters of baptism. So I'm calling you this morning to confidence. You can share the gospel with confidence you can preach renewal and salvation with confidence. And as you preach and teach and encourage this broken world around us, you can point them back to the cross and you can point them back to your story, your baptisms. Two stories that you need to know how to tell and know how to tell well. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't have a baptism story, we want to help you get one. 
Or if you look at your story and it looks maybe a little different than what we've talked about. Maybe when you were baptized, this isn't how you saw it and this isn't really what you did. Then, then we need to do something about that. The biblical pattern for taking hold of salvation is belief and baptism and resurrection into newness of life. That's how we are attached to Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. So if you are ready to die today, we are ready to celebrate that and bury you and celebrate your resurrection today. The invitation is always open. 24 hours a day. We will pray with you, study with you, baptize you. But I want you to know that right now, right now in front of all of these people, you have an opportunity to come forward. You have an opportunity to walk down the aisle. You won't walk alone. You won't be judged. You will be supported. And we will gather around you. We will pray for you. And we will walk this walk together. If you have a need, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.